0: It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are prepared to uh, worship the Lord through the teaching of His Word. Scripture teaches us that when we sin, we shut down or grieve the Holy Spirit. As a result of that, the Holy Spirit is no longer operational in our lives in relation to spiritual growth and sanctification. Other ministries continue, but the sanctification ministries do not. Scripture teaches us as well that the way to cleansing is through the use of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, which means to name, acknowledge, admit our sins to Him, to simply uh, identify the sins in our life, then He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So before we begin, we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, use silent prayer to confess any known sins to God the Father, to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the Word, and to concentrate on what he has to teach us this morning. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this privilege to gather together to fellowship around the teaching of your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation that we can meet without interference from the government. We thank you for all the freedoms that we have in this nation, and we continue to pray for our president, for our national leaders and others who are involved in keeping us secure, for those who are serving in the military, even those uh, from this congregation that are serving over there in civilian capacities, we pray that you would watch over them and keep them safe and secure and bring them home safely to their families. Father, we continue to pray for our nation during this war on terrorism, that you would give us the victory, that you would uh, foil the plots and the conspiracies of the enemy, and even those that are enemies within our own nation, we pray that you would uh, make them known, that they would make mistakes, and that they would not be able to accomplish the uh, nefarious plans that they uh, have set forth. Father, we pray for us as a body of believers that we might not be discouraged or distracted by the things that go around us in terms of uh, uh, elections, in terms of politics, in terms of uh, the events surrounding the world, but that we might keep our focus on our own Christian life and Christian growth. And the key there is a walk by means of the Holy Spirit through the study and application of your word. That this is the highest priority for us. And so we worship you this morning in the highest form of worship by studying your word. And we pray that you would uh, challenge us and teach us. And as you do, that we would be responsive to that challenge to take these things and apply them in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John or to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and we continue our study in the introduction of the book of Revelation. The first chapter serves as a general introduction. You have a specific prologue in verses 1 through 3, where we're told that this is a revelation from Jesus Christ. It's given to Him by God the Father, and He communicated it to man by sending an angel to the apostle John. And John is the one who has recorded this book of Revelation. We're also told that there's a special blessing for those who teach the Word. Uh, When you read in the English, blessed is he who reads, the Word there is the public reading of the book of Revelation, which today would indicate the public teaching of Revelation. So there's a blessing for the pastor who teaches Revelation and for those who hear it and who keep the words of this prophecy. And the warning that the time is near indicates that we must always be mindful that we don't know how much longer we have on this planet. The Lord could come tomorrow uh, one way or the other, either in the rapture or He could take you home to be with Him tomorrow. So we need to be ready. We need to leave, live our life with a sense of urgency and a sense of realizing that each moment is going to be uh, accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ at the the judgment seat of Christ. Then in verse 4, we have a salutation greeting. The the book of Revelation is written to the seven churches in Asia that we have studied. And John addresses it to them. The whole book of Revelation will go to each of these churches. Not just the letters to each one, but the entire book. So John will write it down, and then he will send, uh, make copies and send one to each of these seven churches. In the salutation, he gives the source of the revelation that this is from, uh, the, the Father described as Him who is and who was and who is to come in verse four. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne, a description of the full, full ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And verse five, from Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ, as He moves through this, this, uh, uh, salutation, He is moved to a a tremendous uh, doxology. That means a word of praise. We sang, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty at the first hour. That's a doxology. It is a a statement of praise or glory. And as John rehearses in his mind the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is moved to a fantastic statement of praise at the end of verse 6. And really, this whole thing begins with verse five, where he says, "Jesus Christ, the faithful witness," referring to his first advent ministry as a testimony to God, to the plan of God, that He was faithful, which of course is an attribute of deity. That He was, He is in as God, He is immutable. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the faithful witness. Second, He's the firstborn from the dead, a reference to the. Um, Resurrection and His ascension that He was, uh, seated now at the right hand of God the Father. The first term, faithful witness, relates to His role to First Advent as a prophet declaring the Word of God. Firstborn from the dead emphasizes His current session in heaven where He is serving as our High Priest. He is not seated on His throne, He is seated at the right hand of the Father. On the Father's throne, he does not receive his throne and begin to rule and reign from his throne until the end of the tribulation period when he returns at the second coming, when he returns to the earth. So John has this triplet here, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. That refers to his future rule and reign as the king of kings and Lord of Lords. So it lays out his, his three titles, prophet, priest, and king. And it lays out the overarching ministry of the Lord from the first advent to his, uh, priestly session to his future reign. And having concluded that and with John and all the wealth of doctrine in his soul, as he has written those three titles, I'm sure that it, that it, the, the realization of everything that Christ has done for him just wells up in his soul, and so he gives a a, uh, a benediction, a good word a a, a uh, statement of dedication here at the end of verse five. he says to him, "Now we have another triplet describing Jesus Christ. Uh, John is fond of triplets all through revelation where he uh, connects things and you know, groups things together in, in groups of three. He says from, he says to him who loves us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And last time I went through uh, the text here talking about uh, the fact that there are some textual variants and the correct reading here based on uh, the majority text is he loves us, present tense, emphasizing his ongoing ministry to the believer uh, after salvation. And then he goes back to the foundation of that ongoing relationship, that he it is based on what he did in washing us from our sins by means of his own blood. Now, in the last two Sundays, I've spent time on that one phrase, that he washed us by means of his own blood. And I want to tie some more things together on that after we have uh, taken it apart in detail. We first of all had to find out what we had there in that phrase, who loved us and washed us, because some of the translations you use, if you use an NASB or if you use an NIV, you're going to have a slightly different reading. And I know I have these slides out of order, so let me give me, bear with me a minute here, and I'm going to jump down and see if I can uh, find the right one. Uh, I've got to get past all these. No, I don't know where I put it. Let's go back to the beginning. There it is. To Him who loves us. And the question there is, is Is it is it loves us or loved us? And I pointed out that The majority text, as well as some of the older manuscripts, have a present tense there, so that's the best reading. And then the next problem was that word translated washed, and I put this up on the board to give you a sense of of the problem. In some of the older manuscripts, uh, you have the first word reading here, this is what it looks like in the Greek text. Here's the transliteration. The only difference between these two words is this omicron. L-U is what you have in some versions. That would be translated uh, redeemed. L-O-U is in other versions, which is translated wash from the Greek root luo. Both would be pronounced the same. Luo meaning to wash. So I concluded that based on the textual evidence, washing was the best translation. Now, He washes us, as I said last time, by means of His blood. And I emphasize, and then we had a discussion of the meaning, the blood of Christ. Is this a literal term or figurative term? And we concluded that it was a figurative term. It's not talking about his physical hemoglobin. It's not talking about the fact that he bled to death on the cross. It's not even talking about the fact that his physical death paid the penalty for sin. Because the penalty for sin was spiritual death. Genesis 2-7. God told Adam, in the day that you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. It's an emphatic statement in the Hebrew. It means instantly that death will take place. Well, Adam lived to be 930 years old. He did not physically die for another 930 years after the flood, or probably uh, 850 or 900 years because he was in the garden for some time before he sinned. So he doesn't die Physically, for some 800, 850 more years. But he did die spiritually, because when God came to walk in the garden that afternoon, Adam and Eve ran and hid, because they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and they were afraid. Why were they afraid? They'd never been afraid before. They were afraid now because they had died spiritually, and they couldn't have a relationship with God. They knew that they were sinners, and that they were... Uh, unrighteous, and that unrighteous people could not have a relationship with a righteous God. And so they tried to solve their problem, by, uh, which was the exposure of their nakedness, which was simply a physical symptom of the spiritual condition, and they tried to solve it by making clothes of fig leaves. And God, of course, confronted them with their sin, Outlined what the consequences of that sin would be in terms of the curse at the end of chapter 3. And then he sacrificed two animals to take their skins and to make clothing for the, uh, for Adam and Eve. Now in that act of sacrifice, there's the shedding of blood. And this was to picture the fact that salvation would come through the shedding of blood. The term, as we studied last time, means, it is an idiom for violent physical death. It is not a term that implies necessarily physical death. For example, the basis for capital punishment in Genesis chapter 9, I believe it's in verse 6 or 7, uh, says that whoever sheds blood, man's blood, by man his blood shall also be shed. That's not talking about the fact that if you murder somebody, only by shedding their blood. murder. You can murder somebody through poison, strangulation, hitting them over the head, all manner of ways that don't involve bleeding at all. And you can also execute somebody all manner of ways without shedding their blood at all. You can hang them. You can uh, stone them. You can uh, 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 electrocute them. You can give them an injection. There's all kinds of ways you can execute someone without shedding blood. So the phrase whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall also be shed is an idiom indicating violent physical death. Now in the case of our Lord it wasn't his physical death that could pay the penalty for sin. It had to be his spiritual death. It had to be his his physical, I mean his spiritual death because the penalty that had to be paid for sin Was had to be of the same kind as the penalty for sin so that had to be spiritual death so we saw that this phrase means that he loves us and he washed us and that is an idiom in the scripture for the cleansing that comes at sin by means of his own blood so there is rich imagery here now to understand this I want to go back and just look at a, a quick review of salvation the washing concept and the use of by His blood is, are terms that are consistently used in relation to the total doctrine of salvation. For example, I went through verses last time where we are said to be justified by His blood, cleansed by His blood, redeemed by His blood, propitiated by His blood, so that the concept of His blood relates to all of the various dimensions of salvation. So let's look at it. What is the process of salvation? Well, first of all, we have to understand that the problem is sin. Sin is that which is contrary to the perfect righteousness and justice of God. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, that plunged the human race into sin and created a variety of problems that had to be resolved in terms of their salvation, so that a brick wall was set up between man and God, and this is the sin barrier. First element in the sin barrier is the problem of sin itself. Second element is the penalty of sin. Because man is a sinner, he violates the righteousness of God. Because of the penalty of sin, he's spiritually dead, and he can't have a relationship with God. So each human being is born guilty of Adam's original sin, and bearing the penalty of sin in terms of spiritual death, incapable of having a relationship with God. The third problem in the barrier is God's own character. Because God is perfectly righteous, He can't have a relationship with a sinful creature. The righteousness of God is His standard. The justice of God is the application of that standard to man. So before God can save a fallen creature, His righteousness and justice have to be have to be uh, satisfied this is why uh, as I emphasize again and again when you run into somebody who says uh, oh I can't believe in Christianity how can a loving God send creatures to the lake of fire you need to respond by saying well that's interesting uh, I, I'm sure there's an answer to that but do you have an answer to the problem of how can a righteous God let a miserable rotten sinner into heaven because that's the real issue and love finds a way in salvation, but the real problem isn't the love of God, it's the righteousness of God. Man has a problem because everything he does is minus R. He lacks righteousness. Isaiah 65, 6 says that uh, all our righteousness is not your unrighteousnesses, but all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That means that every... Sin, every good deed, the most righteous things you do, don't cut any ice with God. They are filthy rags. On top of that, we're spiritually dead. And there's no way that we can get into heaven when we are spiritually dead. And finally, there's our position in Adam. We are in Adam. And the Scripture says, in Adam all die. These are the different dimensions of the sin problem. Now... The cross resolves all of them. It is at the cross that God deals with all of man's uh, problems. First of all, the problem of sin, that every human being is a sinner, born a sinner, is resolved by unlimited atonement. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for everyone's sin. Now, that doesn't mean everyone's going to heaven, but it means that the penalty has been resolved. It's been paid by Christ on the cross, but it isn't applied yet. The atonement, and and actually all I'm emphasizing is the unlimited dimension of it. It's for everyone. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and Christ paid the penalty for all. The penalty itself is paid in the aspect of salvation known as redemption. Redemption always has with it that idea of paying a price. And so the penalty for sin is paid. Christ pays the penalty for all. It is a real substitution. Uh, in, in theology, you'll find some debate over this. They'll say that, well, it was, it was only for the elect. But you have many different passages that teach that Christ paid the pe- sin for all. We've gone through those in the past. Redemption is not just for the elect. Redemption is for all. And I hear the question, well, what about those who, who uh, don't believe it, are they redeemed? Yes, but we'll see what happens in a minute. The character of God is resolved through propitiation, justification, and imputation. Three doctrines take care of the issue of the character of God and man's... Uh, let me see here, that put two things across. Let me see if I can back it up and just get... No? Okay. Propitiation, justification, and imputation. Now, when Christ died on the cross, He propitiated God's character. Now, Scripture teaches that, in many passages, that the atonement was for all, redemption is for all, and propitiation is for all. But it doesn't teach that justification is for all, or imputation is for all, or regeneration, or changing our position in Christ. See, these top three happen when you put your faith alone in Christ alone. The bottom three, unlimited atonement, redemption, and propitiation, have to do with the objective work of Christ on the cross. So that when He died on the cross, His death was sufficient for all. He He actually truly paid the penalty for all. And God the Father's justice and righteousness were satisfied for all. However, there's still a problem. And the problem is that the individual is still minus R. He still lacks righteousness. He's still spiritually dead. And he's still an Adam. Christ's death didn't transfer you from any of that. It just paid the penalty. took care of the objective aspects of the cross, but not the subjective application of the cross. So the issue is, for each individual is faith alone in Christ alone. What do you believe? And at the instant that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that He, he gives that to you. It's an accounting term, and it indicates that you previously had a bank account that was in arrears. It was, you were bouncing checks so bad there was no way you would ever not bounce a check. You were so far in debt that you would never climb out of the hole and even if you climbed your whole life you would still be so far down you couldn't see daylight. But with imputation, God gives you a positive balance in that checking account. You now have plus R. You're still a sinner. You still have a sin nature. You still commit sins. But as far as God is concerned, your bank account now has the righteousness of Christ in it. So no matter what you do, You still have the righteousness of God. That's why we're saved not by works of righteousness, which we have done, because our works can't ever do anything. So we can't lose our salvation because of what we do after salvation. We can't gain salvation by anything we do before salvation because it's all grace. It's all based on what Christ did and nothing else. It's His righteousness, not our righteousness, So at the instant of uh, faith alone in Christ alone, we receive the imputation of God's perfect righteousness. And as a result of that, God looks at us, sees that perfect righteousness and says, you are justified. It is a judicial declaration from the Supreme Court of Heaven. All of these terms have something to do with a courtroom scenario. Now, today we live in a world where people don't understand this. Because we live in a culture now that emphasizes relationship and feel good, and, and you'll turn on your television, you'll hear somebody who really hasn't studied their Bible very well, and they'll say, "You just just ask Jesus into your life. And I always like to ask folks like this. I say, well, give me one verse in Scripture that says, you know, ask Jesus into your life and you'll have eternal life. Invite Jesus into your heart and you'll have eternal life. And it bothers me that p- pastors can't get the gospel right what's the problem people can't read their Bible again and again and again the word that's used is believe 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 John 3.18 which I quote uh, every Sunday morning he who believes on him is not condemned but he who believeth not is condemned already why? because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God what's the issue? Never says invite Jesus into your life. It's not relational. See, we want to make everything in the gospel relational. We live in a warm, fuzzy world today. We've been psychologized and psychobablized by Freud for the last hundred and fifty years, and everybody wants the warm fuzzies, and we we look at life through relational glasses. But see, the issue with God wasn't relationship, it was justice. His justice was violated, his righteousness was violated at the uh, in the garden, and His righteousness and justice had to be satisfied first. Then His love is free to flow to us in terms of relationship. But what we want to do is we want to put the cart before the horse and run around telling everybody that you need to have a relationship with Jesus to get saved. Well, Judas had a relationship with Jesus and he's in hell. You don't need to have a relationship with Jesus. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So the issue is... Belief. We, at the instant of salvation, now all these things at the top on the right, imputation, justification, regeneration, and position of Christ happen simultaneously and instantaneously. Let me say that again. Simultaneously and instantaneously. You don't feel a thing, but it all happens at the same time. In about one sixty fifth of a second, you know, in, in a nanosecond, a thousandth of a second, it all happens. But it happens in a logical order. First, you're, you are uh, you receive the imputation of righteousness, then God declares you just. Because you are just, God then regenerates you. He gives you a new human spirit, and you are born again. You are born anew, and you become a child of God. Many other things happen. We're adopted in the family of God. We become a, uh, a priest. We become... And dwelt by the Holy Spirit, baptized by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. All of these other things happen at that instant. Uh, and then we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. That's known as a baptism by means of the Holy Spirit so that we are now in Christ. And we have a new identity in Christ. And this is a doctrine that is not taught enough today. You see, the Bible says that the problem that you have in life is that you are a dirty, rotten, scuzzy, obnoxious sinner, and God despises sin. And that's your problem. And every problem you have in life is not a result of the fact that your parents were failures. Let me tell you, every one of us had parents who were failures. Every one of us grew up in environments that were terrible. You may have grown up in poverty, and you think that uh, some, somebody who grew up and had a tremendous amount of wealth and advantage didn't have any problems. Well, just look around at all those kids of all those movie stars and all the problems they have. See, you know, just because their world was different from your world doesn't mean that there was no sin there. Okay? We all grew up in flawed environments. It doesn't matter. Their flaw might not have been your flaw. Their problems might not have been your problems, but they were still problems. We live in a fallen world. So the problem that we have is sin, and the solution is the grace of God at the cross, and then the post-salvation solution is using the Word of God... To grow to spiritual maturity because the Word of God is sufficient to solve our problems. Now, remember, the problems are not the problems you think they are. You're thinking in terms of, well, I have to go home and I'm having trouble with my car and I can't pay my bills this month and, and you know, my kids are still um, disobedient and they're making decisions that I, I don't like and I don't agree with. You're focusing on on the surface. But the Bible says that the real issue is what's going on inside your soul and those problems are all resolved by Scripture See, we can't control people, we can't control events, and we can't control circumstances. Things are going to happen that we don't like that are outside of our control all throughout our lives. The issue is how do we handle those circumstances, events, people, and emotions. And the Bible tells us how to handle those times so that we can have maximum joy, stability, and happiness no matter what's going on. When everything's falling apart around us, we can just be relaxed and as cool as a cucumber because we know that Jesus Christ controls history and Jesus Christ is in control of the details of our life. But the issue here is going to be, be uh, grounded in something we study this morning. See, one of the other problems that the world says is really the problem with those kids that grew up with, in poverty or maybe they grew up and they were spoiled with wealth or whatever it may be, is that, that they don't have a good self-esteem that's their problem is they don't have a good self-image. And so uh, because they've misidentified the problem, then the government, which is part of the cosmic system, comes along and throws millions of dollars at school curriculum to teach kids to have a good self-esteem. See, if the problem isn't self-esteem and the problem is sin, then no matter how much money you throw at the problem of self-esteem, you won't solve anything. You're just going to waste a lot of money trying to solve a non-existent problem. And you get a lot of believers who get saved, and they come into the Christian life, and they've been brainwashed by the cosmic system into thinking that that all oh, things would just be better if I had a better self-image, a better self-esteem. Well, see, the Bible says it's not that. It's do you understand who you are in Jesus Christ? You understand what Jesus Christ has done for you, and your identity in Him because you are adopted into the royal family of God and you are now a royal priest and that is part of your identity that is part of who you are and you need to get that drilled into your soul so far down that when negative things happen in life you don't fall into the control of your sin nature and start whining and and uh, crying about how you have a poor self image and life would just be better but you need to understand that You need to instantly confess that sin and get back in fellowship and start living as if you are a child of God, part of the royal family of God, with uh, a behavior code in the Bible for the royal family. And this is the basis of what we're hitting here at the end of uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Now let me show you the connection. After God solved the problem of the barrier, remember this whole thing is resolved by the blood of Christ. That phrase is used to describe all these different doctrines. Redemption, propitiation, justification are all aspects that are resolved. Cleansing are all aspects resolved by the blood of Christ. Now this concept of washing goes throughout the scripture. Now I'm going to show you why, I said last time, other than just the the, the textual evidence itself, I want to show you why doctrinally washing fits the context better. We go back to Psalm 51, verse 2. Psalm 51, verse 2, and we see that washing is an integral part of the Christian life. And this has to do with David's confession of his sin of adultery. And look at the verbiage. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now remember, there's two places in life where we get cleansing. When you trust Christ as Savior, you are cleansed positionally. When you confess your sins after salvation, you are cleansed experientially. Now Psalm 51-2 is talking about a post-salvation cleansing. But I just put it up there because that gives you that imagery. Uh, In verse 7, uh, of Psalm 51. David uses the same verbiage again. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. See, he's already saved, but post-salvation sin gets a little dirt on us, so we have to be washed again. Now, the the positional aspect is indicated in Isaiah 1:16. In Isaiah 1:16, God says, actually 1:16 through. And 116 and 18, God says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Now we can't wash ourselves, but the emphasis here is on salvation. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. This is what happens at salvation. We are washed. And become white as snow. That's positional righteousness. In the New Testament, we have the same imagery used. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. This is Titus 3.5. How are we saved? Through the washing of regeneration. So again, we have this washing imagery, this washing metaphor used to describe regeneration and what happens at salvation. And this is connected to the renewing ministry of the God the Holy Spirit in regeneration. So we are washed. Now, this also buys into our, lays into terminology Jesus uses in John 13, uh, 10 in this uh, episode with with uh, the foot washing of Peter. I just have verse 10 up on the overhead, but I want to get the context here, so turn in your Bibles with me to John 13. John chapter 13, the setting is Passover meal. This is the night before the Lord went to the cross. It is the Passover meal and... The disciples have found a place where they can all celebrate the Passover meal together. And we read in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, uh, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot uh, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hand, and that He had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, and laid aside His garments, take a towel, and girded Himself. Now He's going to do something to teach a doctrinal principle. And this is rooted in Old Testament imagery. He is going to wash their feet. And notice what He says. See, in the background is that if you lived in that culture... Your feet would already be clean. I mean, your body would already be clean. You would have taken a bath. I mean, it's a Passover. It's the highest holy day in all of the Jewish calendar. So before coming to dinner, you would have taken a complete bath. So Jesus says, um, He poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which He was girded. Now, when He uses the term washing their feet, He uses a Greek word, nipto, N-I-P-T-O not the word for washing here guess what word is used for washing here luo, the word that we have over in Revelation 1-5 L-O-U and it ends with omega Omega. so instead of using that word which would indicate a complete head-to-toe bath he uses a word nipto meaning a partial washing he's simply washing the feet not the whole body he comes to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, I'm teaching a principle through this imagery. You don't understand it now, but just shut up and let me do it. You know, Peter's always mouthing off at the wrong point. And Peter, said, and Peter responds in arrogance. He's already out of fellowship. He says, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered and said, If I do not wash you, you will have no part with me. And that word washing, again, is nipto. If I don't do this partial washing, you won't have any part with me. Now, we studied this in the past, and that word translated part is the Greek word meros, M-E-R-O-S, meros. And, see, we want to look at the English word part, and the way we interpret that is in the sense of a role. You know, Jesus said to Peter, You won't have if you don't let me do this, you won't have a role with me. In other words, you won't have a part to play. You won't have anything to do in in, in the kingdom. But that's not what meros means. The word meros was a technical legal term in ancient Greek legal documents known as wills, testaments and wills. And if you were designating your inheritance to someone That that portion that they received was the meros, the part. That was the part of the inheritance they received, the portion that they received. And what Jesus is saying to Peter is, if you don't let me cleanse you, i.e., if you don't go through life confessing your sin and being cleansed so that the production in your life is through the filling of the Spirit, the result is going to be you're going to lose your inheritance. Not your salvation, but your inheritance that God has In our inheritance, there's two aspects. There's permanent inheritance and there's uh, contingent inheritance. And we've studied this many times under the doctrine of rewards and crowns that there are some things that every believer will receive in heaven. A new resurrection body. We will all have eternal life. We will all have great joy and happiness and no more tear, no more uh, pain, no more death. The old things have passed away. But... Some of us will have things that others do not have. For example, in, in the seven letters to the seven churches, we learn that those who overcome will be allowed to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Others who overcome will be given the crown of life. and Others who overcome will be able to eat from the hidden manna. Others will receive a stone, a white stone with their name written on it, a name which no one else can read, only the person who receives it. So there are all of these various promises given to believers who overcome. That is those who advance to spiritual maturity. So when Peter, I mean, when Jesus says this to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. He's saying if I don't wash you in terms of periodic cleansing in the Christian life, you won't have an inheritance because you'll live your whole Christian life in the power of the flesh and not by walking by the Spirit. But Peter doesn't understand all that now. He hasn't learned it yet. Uh, Jesus hasn't given him the uh, discourse of the vine in chapter 15 yet. So he's just saying, be quiet, Peter. I have to give the visual right now. You'll learn about what it means later on. Then in verse 9, Peter said to him, Lord, if that's the case, don't just wash my my feet, but wash my hands and my head. Just, Just wash the whole body. And then Jesus said, no, no, you still don't get it. He who is bathed. Needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. The word there bathed is lua washing, that complete washing. That word that we have in, in uh Revelation one uh, six. He or one five. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, you, Peter, but not all of you. In other words, not all the disciples are cleansed. Judas is the unbeliever in the midst. And that's what he indicates in verse eleven, for he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, You are not all clean. So that's the backdrop here to John thirteen ten. Washing is a major metaphor in the scripture for salvation. But it is also used, though a slightly different word is used for washing when it's talking about post salvation cleansing from sin, uh first John one nine. This goes back to Exodus. 29, verse 4. There we read, And Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. See, this imagery in the New Testament doesn't just pop up at the Last Supper. This goes back to the Old Testament. This is why I keep saying you can't understand the New Testament unless you put it in the framework of the Old Testament. This introduces the categories and the concepts. When a priest was initiated into the priesthood, he was bathed from head to toe. At that initiatory rite, he was washed with water. And incidentally, when the the Jews understood this, they only had one word for washing, which was the Hebrew word rachatz. R-A-C-H-A-T-Z, rachatz. Only one word for washing. But when the Jewish translators of the Septuagint, which is the Greek, Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. When those Jews translated this from Hebrew into Greek about 200 B.C., they understood that this, was, that this was a total washing, and they translated it with the Greek verb luo, L-O-U-O. They understood this was a complete washing as opposed to the partial washings that would take place whenever a priest went in to serve in the tabernacle. Each time a priest would go into the tabernacle, the first article of furniture that he, that met him in the, in the, in the tabernacle or temple was the, the golden laver. And he would have to wash his hands and his feet. And that was a symbol of the fact that he had done things and been places he shouldn't have been. In other words, he had committed sin. So, since he had already been washed from head to toe, indicating he was saved, now he had to go through periodic cleansings or washings before he could go serve the Lord as a priest in the tabernacle or in the temple. So now he has a partial washing, and he is now in fellowship. He is cleansed. See, that's the real issue in the Scripture. The Scripture only emphasizes forgiveness a few places. The real issue is cleansing. We have to have the sin dealt with. There's this cleansing. So, then the priest would go into the temple or tabernacle, and he would be he would be cleansed. Now, you see how that fits with the context and the flow of John's thought. Remember, John was there in John 13. He wrote John 13. He understood these principles. He wrote 1 John 1.9. John has a firm grasp of this doctrine. And where does he go with it? Right after he says he, he, he loves us and washed us by means of his own blood, and what he has made as kings and priests to his God and Father. See, this whole imagery of washing comes right out of the Old Testament imagery of priests, and that's what Jesus is talking about in terms of serving him in um, uh, John chapter thirteen. So as John is reflecting on this, he moves very naturally from the concept of washing to the concept that this being cleansed gives us a functional role as priests to his God and Father. Now, there's a couple of things we have to note in terms of translation here, so you don't get too too confused. If you are using a king James or a New King James translation, then your verse reads kings, that He has made us kings. But that's wrong. And other versions will say He has made us a kingdom and priests. Scratch out the word and. It is not in the original. Scratch out the word and. It is not in... um, it is not in the original it, of, any, of any of the uh, texts. That's just added. In fact, it's an editorial mistake because usually they put words like that in italics and they just didn't, haven't done that. But he has made us, uh, literally a kingdom, not kings. And that's just bad translation. Uh, it's just a bad translation in the King James and New King James. It is a kingdom. He has made us a kingdom, comma, priests to his God and Father. Okay, I don't have that corrected up there on the overhead, but that's that's um, that's just how the New King James reads. But it should read: He has made us present tense kings uh, a kingdom that is a domain or a dominion priest to his God. What characterizes this dominion is that the every individual believer in the church age functions as a priest to God. Now, we have to understand a couple of things grammatically here before we get into the, the application impact of this passage. First of all, we have a construction here in the grammar that is called a double accusative. You have uh, the, the verb is poieo. The aorist active indicative of poieo. Past tense, simple past. A common, or it's really a constitutive aorist. It's just simply summarizing the whole process up into one simple statement without reference to its beginning or end or its progress. He has made us. He has made. And then the accusative direct object is us. The accusative direct object is us, but the word kings... Is also an accusative. So the ver- main verb he made has two direct objects. He made us kings, and this construction is called a double accusative. And verbs that take uh, double accusatives are verbs like point that we that we have here in this context. And in this type of construction, usually uh, one of the words is a person. That's us. One is a involves a person the other a thing that is a kingdom a thing and in most cases the person us receives the thing that's in the accusative case so in this case we believers receive something we receive a position in this in this kingdom and so kingdom is the more remote of the two uh, objects so he has made us a kingdom, and, take out the word and, a kingdom, and then the next word is priests. And this is also an accusative. It's an apposition to kings. So it is describing the kind of kings that we are. We are, I mean, the kind of kingdom that this is, or our role in that kingdom. We are priests. He has made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father. So the impact here is on the fact that we are priests. Now, this also takes us back to the Old Testament. In in Exodus 19.6, the Jews were told, You shall be be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. God, that is God speaking to Moses. So Israel was set apart as a special kind of nation. As a nation, they were going to be a priestly nation, even though not every member was a priest. Only those who were from the tribe of Levi were priests. In the church age, God calls out a new set of people. See, the the Jews failed. Now, they're not replaced by the church. In history, God is still going to fulfill all of His promises to Israel in terms of the land. God is going to give the land to Israel. He's going, they're, they're still going to be a blessing to all nations in the future when they are restored to the land and the uh, seed promise which comes to fulfillment in the uh, eternal Son of David, who will rule on the throne of Israel. Those are yet to be fulfilled. But what we have is in the New Testament is that the writers of the New Testament take, take the Old Testament uh, passages, That related to the nation of Israel, and apply that same principle to the church. That in the Old Testament, Israel was called out to be a counterculture in the world. They were to represent God to the world. They failed. Because they failed, God postpones His plans for them. The kingdom doesn't come to them, it's postponed. And there is a temporary shift from Israel to the church. And in the church, ethnicity doesn't apply. There's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or slave, male or female. We're all one in Christ. But what God is doing in the church is doing the same kind of thing He did with Israel. He sets us apart as a counterculture in the world. We are not of the world, but we are in the world. And we are to be a counterculture. Now, we function as, as priests. And this is the imagery that is picked up in a number of different verses related to our function as priests. Let me see if I got... didn't get these in here. First of all, Hebrews thirteen fifteen. Therefore, by Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. See, that's part of our priesthood. We praise God. We give thanks to God. We're grateful to God. It's a part of the fruit of the Spirit. So, in our priesthood, as we live... In, in in the uh, filling of the Spirit, we are uh, thankful for all things. First uh, Peter two five picks up this same imagery that we get and re- and refers back to First uh, Peter two five and two nine refer back to the Exodus nineteen six passage. Uh, in First Peter two five five we read, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So in order to be able to do this, we have to be both positionally cleansed and experientially cleansed. So that in 1 Peter 2.9 we read, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are a holy priesthood, a a holy kingdom, and this also has implications for the future. Because the word priest, interestingly enough, is not used in either the Gospels or in the Epistles in relationship to believers. But it, I mean, that is the word priest. The concept is there in terms of our spiritual service until we get to the passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, Verse nine, but the word is used in Revelation five ten and in Revelation ten six. There we read in Revelation five ten, God, speaking to God in praise: "You have made us kings, and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth." And in Revelation, and again, that's translated wrong. I just noticed that. Checking the Greek: "You have made us a kingdom, priests to our God." A kingdom and priest uh, Revelation 5.10, Revelation 20, verse 6, uh, Blessed is holy in in the is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over then the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. So we will rule and reign with Him in the coming kingdom and fully function in our priesthood in that kingdom. Well, how do you learn to do that? Well, you learn to do it here and now. That's, why, that's one of the reasons Revelation was written is to warn us that we are in our training camp right now. And there is a future ruling and reigning and priestly responsibility that we will fulfill in the coming kingdom. And our training is now. And so whatever you get... During this life, how, whatever level of maturity you reach, whatever doctrine you learn during this time on earth is preparatory for your future work in ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come to the end of verse 6 where uh, John expresses uh, praise to Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Because of who... He is. And he closes with the word Amen, which is used some seven or eight times in Revelation. And is a uh, it's from the Greek word Amen based on a Hebrew word, Amen, which means to be true. The, so be it. That's the idiom. It's so be it. It derives from a word indicating stability. In fact, the root meaning of the word had to do with the foundation of a pillar, something that was sunk down deep in the ground, that was unshakable. And so it came to indicate faith. And it also came to indicate uh, a certainty or an affirmation of certainty. So this entered into the early church when someone said something that they agreed with, they would respond by saying, Amen. That's where that practice came from. Of course, today you have people who, like they do with a lot of Christian verbiage, they overuse it and abuse it. So it's better to limit the use of such expressions. Uh, Next time we'll come back and look at verses 7 and 8 and a whole new uh, set of issues as we start to look at the prophetic aspect of our Lord's coming with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word, to come face to face with all that Christ has done for us on the cross and our salvation, that it cleansed us in such a way that we could each now serve as priests to you in preparation for our future role as priests in the millennial kingdom. And that will probably be in relation to Gentile, uh, the Gentile nations. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand these things, and we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you have the opportunity to to determine your eternal destiny. All you need to do is simply put your faith alone in Christ alone, to trust Him. The instant you believe that Jesus died for you, you are regenerate, you are saved, you are justified. All of these things happen instantaneously. And you are entered into the royal family of God and become a royal priest. All that is required from the Scriptures that you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. No works are involved. There is nothing we can do to impress God or to become savable. It is all accomplished by the work of Christ on the cross. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with all that we have learned. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.